I don't know that Shopify will be obsolete. That was like a belief that was pretty, pretty talked about at the dinner. But I do think that this is social commerce in the US. In China, where everybody's, you know, we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars on live streaming and all this other stuff that is done well in China. I don't think that's native to the US. I think this is the native form of social commerce in the US. I do think it's going to bite at Shopify's ankles. Like, I think they're going to start to see, I'd say on average, maybe like five to 15% of sales are going to now happen off of the Shopify site. And, you know, if you factor in Amazon into that, it might be more like 30 to 40%. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. For the last decade of e-commerce, we've conditioned ourselves as marketers to just immediately offer someone a percentage off or dollars off the gross value of their order. Sure, it helps to capture emails, but it's setting expectations that your brand is a coupon cannon right out of the gate. This is one of the reasons I love Postscript. We know Postscript as the SMS company, but they've launched Cashback, a new Postscript product that allows customers to opt in to getting cash back towards their next purchase instead of just a discount. It can be redeemed as a gift card or store credit where most brands will offer an additional 15 to 25% of credit value. Want new customers to convert better and return? Go to postscript.io slash limited. All right, Nick, we're back with another episode of Limited Supply. Uh, I've got a bunch of fun stuff that I want to talk about, including one thing I wrote about. Can we about. quickly acknowledge your hat? What does your hat say? It says Ibadaddy. <laughs> that is the perfect nickname for you. Yeah, I got this as a gift and I love it. Uh, it's been stuck in my parents' house and I finally found it. Amazing. Okay, awesome. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff I want to chat about today, but the first thing I want to chat about is some Facebook ad stuff. Uh, Well, it's not just Facebook ads, but just Facebook in general. And I want to chat about two different things when it comes to this. You know, a while ago on Twitter, I sort of asked people, I was like, hey, are you guys running separate retargeting campaigns or do you have like prospecting and retargeting all in one? And everyone was like, look, we have them all in one these days. The way of having separate retargeting campaigns and separate prospecting campaigns is basically the way that you did it and you're really old. So stop thinking that you know what to do any longer. And then I started asking people and I was like, you know, uh, Facebook has a limit of eight ASC campaigns in any given country. So if you're running ads to Canada, you can have eight ASC campaigns. If you're running ads to Brazil, you can have eight ASC campaigns in Brazil and eight in Canada and eight in the United States. You know, the eight in the United States is a little bit perplexing to me because I was always, at first, I'm not sure why there's a limit of eight ASC campaigns in the United States. And then I always I don't understand how people are running Facebook ads. And I want to get your opinion on this, which is do most people or do the brands that you work with have separate testing and scaling campaigns? Or do yes. they like they do? Okay. And, and tell me how the strategy what the strategy looks like there. Is it like, hey, look, we're gonna test this and if it works, we're gonna pull this out and put it into the scaling campaign? Exactly. So I believe we get tested in one campaign, much lower budget. And then once we start to see the results of that, the click-through rate, the CAC, the ROAS, then depending on that, we'll move it into a bigger scaled campaign. It's not actually too different than like the way we used to do it seven years ago. The difference being that at that time, you would break out prospecting, retargeting, remarketing. Whereas here, I think the first two still stay together. And I could be wrong here because I'm not actually in the accounts today, but I believe remarketing or you know marketing to existing customers is still separate. 
So let me ask this in the like the testing campaign. There's one testing campaign, and let's say there's like let's say it's a thousand dollar budget. Any given time, you've got ten ads there. If you see one ad performing really well, you pull it out and you put it into the scaling campaign. And the scaling campaign already has ten of your best ads, twenty of your best ads. And this campaign that you just pulled out competes against those twenty for budget. Is that how it works? Correct. Okay, that's really interesting. And then. What happens when you pull it out and put it in the scaling campaign and um, like, do, do you reset all the comments and likes and the social proof or no. do you just pull out the ID and put it in there? Pull out the ID. You know, I still don't trust Facebook well enough to be like, look, this is working really well in the testing campaign. Let me put in a scaling campaign and compete for budget. It, it Actually, what I don't trust is the competing for budget. So what I found in some camp- in some accounts that I've gone through is basically they're already maxed out at eight ASC campaigns. And those eight only have one or two or three or four different ads in them. And they're all spending a ton of money on like one creative. But if you put all those creatives into a single campaign, let's say each campaign is spending $100. Like that's a bad example. Each campaign is spending $1,000 and there's eight of them. You're better served doing that than putting them all into one single campaign and spending $8,000 a day. And that's because you can do a better job adjusting what creative uh, should be getting in budget and what shouldn't. But I wonder if this, uh, am I wrong about that? Is this an old school way of thinking? Because it sounds like the news, like, you know, I talked to Cody once a long time ago, Jones Road Beauty, and he's like, I have one ASC campaign. I can't imagine anyone having eight. I think that's right. The way Cody's doing it is right. Uh, I believe that's how we do it as well is the goal is to just consolidate as much as possible. And I do think the the biggest thing that's probably changed from when we were running ads, you know, five, six years ago to today is the algorithm of deciding what creative serves who. Like I think before your best creative would spend based on efficiencies of that creative. But I think with ASC, uh, knowing that it was an evolution of the DABA Dynamic ads, broad audience. The evolution is that I think each creative will basically go out and try to find different audiences that are working for that specific creative. So rather than the ad set just choosing a couple of creatives, it'll try to find pockets of audiences that match that creative and then go against them. Yeah, I think that's the difference. You know, I still have trouble believing that, like, you know, a long time ago when we were running ads five, seven years ago. What I always did is I'd say one campaign can have 100 ad sets or 10 ad sets, whatever you want, doesn't really matter. But yeah. every ad set can only have one ad. And the reason that I set up one ad set, one ad was because I was always like, look, if I put in many creatives into one single ad, Facebook actually doesn't serve the budget well. Like, let's say I have a $1,000 budget in that ad set and 10 creatives. The creative that's working may not be getting the most spend. It might actually be getting the least spend. And so I'd have to be like, this doesn't make any sense. I need to pull, I need to manage creative spend individually. And in order to do that, I have to create one ad set, one ad. I wonder if the new way of doing it is one campaign, it's sort of like now the campaign or ads that level, I guess, and like many creatives, or if it's still best managed, one creative, one ad, so you can manage the spend behind each ad. It's very hard to like A-B test that kind of stuff, I think, but uh, I might be wrong. And like that, if that is a change, it's a fundamental shift in the way that Facebook operates. And I still yeah. see, uh, biz- I see businesses doing it both ways, the way Cody did it and the way that I did it seven years ago. And I'm curious to see if like, you know, old school advertisers that were doing this, have been doing this for five or 10 years are still doing it our way and new guys are doing it Cody's way. I still don't know what the right answer is, but I wanted to get your feedback on it. But you're saying one t- one campaign for scaling, one campaign for testing. 
I believe that's how we do it. But what I'll do is I'll check with our team. And um, for the next episode, I'll have an answer for you. Okay, that sounds great. All right. Next thing I wanted to talk about was on Facebook was actually something I talked about in my newsletter and something we actually talked about at dinner a couple of weeks ago when I think you you hosted that dinner at that really Don't nice a, a restaurant. Yeah, in uh, the West Village. And basically, uh, we realized at that dinner that transactions more and more were happening off of Shopify. Uh, they're happening yes. a lot on TikTok shops. They're happening a lot on Facebook shops and Instagram shops. One of the crazy things that uh, I'm surprised hasn't happened is Google has not created their own shop. Like, why is it that when I Google a product on my iPhone, I find a product on Facebook, Google it, and then click the ad on Google, I'm actually taken to a Shopify site and not Google's own shop so that they can own the data and have first-party data. I hate to think about it this way, but is this the is this the peak or apex of Shopify right now? Facebook is sort of working again. Facebook stock is up a ton. Facebook ads are still driving uh, ads to Shopify. Uh, Facebook shops is still new, but even if you get an order on Facebook shops, it syncs to your Shopify website and gets on Shopify. Same thing with Instagram. Is this the apex of Shopify? Are Facebook shops and TikTok shops going to eat Shopify uh, on the edges for the next couple of years and then eat their lunch in five to 10 years? So about um, 10 years ago, I was a part of writing this patent called Programmatic Digital Commerce. And the entire idea- What were you, four years old? Like, How can you <laughs> sign a patent at that time? No, they didn't let me sign it, actually, uh, which was the yeah, shitty part. Because you were I was under 17. 18, I think. Yeah, yeah I was 17. Yeah, so <laughs> But the idea was that you know we're serving banner ads to all these people. Most banner ads are view through based, uh, and you know you never want to rely on click through conversions from banner ads. But the idea was like, what if we could segment out? You know, let's say Justin Bieber is going on tour. If we could actually understand from first party data from Spotify or the label who are Justin Bieber's top twenty percent of fans and actually sell them a ticket at a higher price before the tour starts at a premium because we know they're they're more engaged. The best way to do that would actually be to sell them that product in the actual ad. So an interactive display ad that you could click and, you know, some sort of one-click connection to your credit card or payment token is there. So even back then I thought this is going to be the future of programmatic digital com- or digital commerce in general is you don't necessarily have to go to this individually created store, right? It's like the idea of going to uh, a Ziploc store versus going to Target. You know, you don't have to go there. You should be able to go to the marketplace equivalent. Now, if you look at the shops today, I think a year and a half ago, when Facebook really started pushing shops on Instagram and Facebook, they sort of tried to make it a, a way to show advertisers like, hey, we aren't getting the full set of data we used to get, but if you leverage our own shops, whether it's by engineering that they did themselves to make CPAs lower for shop specific traffic or the fact that you know maybe they did get some extra signals that actually helped the algorithm they rolled out shops and it did decently well like everybody was starting to add shops into the budget or the allocation of traffic because it was converting well then you had TikTok shops come in and it was like you know what we're actually not even doing this for the advertisers This is for the affiliate marketing world that hasn't been innovated on in 20, 30 years. And now your customers and fans and consumers of the platform are going to be the sellers. It's really interesting because I think there still is a world where you want to go buy from the brand directly. But I think what TikTok Shops has shown us is that one, every every single one of these platforms is going to have their own store. We started seeing it when 
Shopify announced they're integrating with Walmart.com, with TikTok, with YouTube, all these other platforms. But I think the thing TikTok has shown us, and I, and I know that YouTube is actually working. I think that it's an alpha, so I don't know if we're allowed to even say this, but YouTube is working on the same thing as TikTok shops, but for YouTubers. So YouTubers will be able to go into a, a marketplace, look at what they're going to, you know, uh, whatever aligns with their video. Right now, it's all Amazon links, right? You get anywhere from 3% for electronics, maybe 20% for beauty. Uh, it averages maybe around 5%. And YouTube's going to have this fully integrated directly in the video. I don't know that Shopify will be obsolete. That was like a belief that was pretty pretty talked about at the dinner. But I do think that this idea of social, like this is social commerce in the US. In China, where everybody's, you know, we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars on live streaming and all this other stuff that is done well in China. I don't think that's native to the US. I think this is the native form of social commerce in the US. And so I guess to, to your original question, I do think it's going to bite at Shopify's ankles. Like I think they're going to start to see, I'd say on average, maybe like 5 to 15% of sales are going to now happen off of the Shopify site. And you know, if you factor in Amazon into that, it might be more like 30 to 40% of sales or of e-commerce sales are not happening on the Shopify. But I feel like it's hard to imagine that it would be fully obsolete. Of course, the other lever there is like, TikTok and YouTube, they could actually decide, you know what? Stripe is is the other piece that Shopify, if we just integrate Stripe and you use, maybe you use Shopify for order management, maybe we don't need Shopify or maybe we can figure out how to connect to your 3PL directly. But at the same time, you know, I, I wonder like if, if Google or Facebook tries to box out Shopify, they might lose advertiser spend in a way that might outsize the returns of actually pushing forward with commerce. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, and I think there's two different points to talk about here. One is, yes, creating an affiliate network. You know, TikTok Shops has done this great thing to prove to the world that, look, you don't actually need... It, the way that we're getting affiliates, the way that merchants are getting affiliates right now is antiquated. You reach, you DM everyone individually, you create a deal, you create a coupon code, a special link you track sales and then you pay them as a result of that. Uh, like that type of pay to play uh, world is going to be over and it's going to be replaced by the social platform itself. Having the transaction happen on its site and controlling the links and, the, uh, you know, and having first party data. So their data is really unimpeachable. Like what TikTok shops is shown is that share a sale is absolutely obsolete. There's yeah. no like share a sale 10 years from now does not exist. If you look at their website, it looks like someone lost the keys to be able to edit that website <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah. So 10 years from now, it will not exist, I don't think, or at least in the way that it does today. And when Facebook, uh, uh, TikTok has also made it, made it to like almost every brand can be its own MLM right out of the gate. Uh, but I, I think that like, you know, the affiliate thing that they did is creative and really well done. And Facebook and YouTube will adopt that because it just makes so much sense. But I think that is something even different than, look, uh, you discovered a product on this site from an ad or from an affiliate. Doesn't even matter which one. Like Facebook, you know, you probably still discover more things from ads than you do from creators and affiliates. You discover a product from an ad, you go to the Facebook shop and make a purchase. Facebook owns all of that data and has, you know, right now, no one trusts ad manager. That's why on Triple Will, there's like five or 10 different forms of like attribution. You can use UTM parameters. You can use Facebook ad manager. You can use their own, like, you know, there's so many different forms. Right. Seven years, when I was running native, you could trust Facebook like there's no tomorrow because they're like, look, we understand all of the data. Post iOS 14.5, it's gotten a lot uh, more gray. And creating Facebook shop brings in all of that data again and makes it crystal clear. The way that Facebook could win here is to say, look, 
we're subsidizing this. And currently they're already doing that. Like, you know, in the past couple of weeks, I've been thinking about this. So I asked a big ad agency, I don't want to name them because um, I don't want to ruin their relationship with anyone. But I asked a big ad agency, I was like, what are you seeing with Facebook shops? And they're like, we've seen some ups and downs. Uh, you know, the subsidies are obviously great and they push people towards Facebook shops. The downs don't necessarily do that. But, uh, you know, right now it's mixed results and it's too early to tell. But if Facebook really gets behind it and says, we're going to subsidize shops more, People will switch to shop. Like if someone said to you, Nick, all of your brands can have their CPA that they have today if they get off of shop, use Facebook shop, or they can have 2x CPA, but they can drive the ad to their website on Shopify. They'd all say, I want Facebook shop. Yeah, I don't give 100%. a shit where the sale happens. Right. Facebook shop or Shopify, whatever. Like all I care about is the transaction getting done and me getting the money. And so I think Facebook really is in control here. And it's just a function of like, how long does it take them to build out a Shopify competitor internally, if that's their focus? A few yeah. years ago, they didn't have reviews. A few years ago, they didn't offer promotion codes. Now they offer both. Are they going to create subscriptions? Are they going to create a, a, an A plus page or a product detail page? If so, I think like you're right. I, th I bet it's probably around 5% of orders right now are lost on Shopify as a result of Facebook shops and TikTok shops, maybe even less. Five years from now, I think it's 25% or 40%. And that is really scary if you're a Shopify. The other thing to think about too is like the the value of the first party data that you get on the site. So like right now, Facebook doesn't give you an email address because they know exactly who that user is. You know, what happens to the value of uh, email and the email list that you build on your Shopify site? And how do you get capture people who visit your Facebook shop but then don't purchase. Do you have to pay to play? You know, like Facebook has messenger ads that are dirt cheap to send mass blast to anybody who signed up on the list. You know, is that the new form of email that we have to think about? I think it is going to be something similar. It just seems to make so much sense because Facebook starts eating up Shopify's like sales. Yeah. And not to do that to like fuck Shopify, but to say, look, we're going to get better data. And yeah, you know, it's going to be way more powerful if you can retarget people that visited your Facebook shop instead of your Shopify shop, because right. we know what happened on Facebook. We know exactly. Right. And like Facebook's data will get, forget about getting more clear the way it was five years ago, get even better. We know how, what products they looked at. We understand SKUs. We understand price points. We understand bundles. We understand even delivery timeframes. And so I think that like um, it could be a radical change inside the e-commerce ecosystem. And I think Shopify becomes Zapier then, like sort of yeah. getting in, z zapping in all of these sales from all of these right. shops and zapping them out to your 3PL. Yeah, that's actually a fantastic way to think about it. The other thing too is, you know, like the data that we lose now is if you go to Everlane and you choose to look at a beige colored top versus a navy blue top, Facebook used to get that data and then your DPA ads from uh, from half days would show a navy blue jacket versus a beige or whatever the one that is sure. you looked at there. We're going to now get that data. And on the same, same thing with TikTok shops, you know, going through the process of uploading products into TikTok shop, they are collecting so much data on what exactly is in the products you're uploading. So like when we uploaded a product for long weekend, it was like, what's the ingredient list? What is the certification? What is it natural? Is it organic? Whatever. And that's just adding so much more uh, zero party data to my profile. If I buy from that brand now it, in two years from now, when it becomes even more sophisticated, like their data set is, I think, going to be incredibly powerful. Yeah. You know, we both know a guy um, in California who's killing it on TikTok shops. Yeah. You know, like when I think about that guy, I think, does he give a shit about his Shopify store? And I think the answer Probably may not. be no. And yeah. he's probably doing $40 million in revenue a month. 
And I think he doesn't give a shit about his Shopify store. And that yeah. is scary. Agreed. Nick, uh, Postscript is the sponsor for this podcast. I'm so excited about that. Uh, I'm an early investor in Postscript. I invested right after they graduated Y Combinator, and I wrote a really big check for myself into them because I really love the product and the guys who are running that business. You know, they told us when they were sponsoring this podcast to talk about their cashback product, which is a fantastic cashback product. I know True Classic uses it, Ben loves it, but I don't care about the cashback product. That's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about their text messaging. It's so good. Uh, Native is certainly a customer. And unlike Attentive and Clavio and all the other guys who do text, it's the only thing that Postscript focuses on. They're not sending out emails, they're not creating weird programs to uh, power reviews. Postscript really cares about text messaging and they're best in class at that. They created this amazing on-site opt-in for text messages. It's unique to them. Nobody else has it. And when they had this launch party, I remember talking to Cody at uh, Jones Road Beauty, and he told me that he saw an 82% increase in conversion for mobile signups by adding their on-site opt-in and 3x more revenue beyond their initial forecast as a result of it. It's really amazing. Uh, To learn more, go to postscript.io slash limited. Uh, Once again, that's postscript.io slash limited. Okay, let's uh, move on to some M&A stuff. I mentioned this in our last episode Nutribolt, which is a company I, I think behind C4, mm, C4 um, Energy. Yeah, it just invested $90 million into Bloom Nutrition. What do you think of that? I think that's a, a smart move on both sides. Do you know if it was primary or secondary or it didn't say? It didn't say. Um, but I would imagine a lot of that secondary. Yes. And I think it gives... Uh, so the Nutribolt team is insanely sharp. I mean, they own 70% of the pre-workout market with C4. And they are some of the most savage marketers and brand builders I've ever seen. I know that they have pursued deals like this with other companies, both that were that are pre-launch and you know, we're gonna have a celebrity backing, and also brands that are, you know, as big as Bloom. I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. It's like, hey, Bloom, you guys have gotten this far on your own. You know, why don't you take some cash off the table and let us get a seat here? We have every single distributor, every single connect, like anything Bloom could ever desire for their products, whether it's distribution, formulation, Nutribolt has a whole supply chain and facility to get products out quickly. Like everything they could want, Nutribolt already has, and they have at probably the best terms with suppliers, distributors, transportation, raw ingredients. So to me, it makes a lot of sense that they would do it. Uh, is C4 just a pre-workout drink? I was like looking it up right now. Is it just pre-workout? I think they have a few SKUs, but they're definitely best known for pre-workout. For pre-workout. Their energy okay, gotcha. drink is something that has gained a lot of market share in the last probably five years. Yeah. By the way, I've got a great name for an energy drink. It should be called ATP, which is like a deanine triphosphate, the biology thing that causes, like that is used for energy. I think energy, it, yeah. Yeah. You use ATP and put like a little organic chemical, like, you know, benzene chemical compound next to yeah. it. I think people will <laughs> love it. But anyway, um, Bloom is amazing. And, you know, I, I, we talked a few episodes ago about how they lost all of their Amazon reviews and were taken down as a result of sort of being gray market Amazon marketers. I wonder if those reviews are back. They're Actually, back. let me look it up right now. They all they have a lot of them again? I think so, yeah. They have a lot of reviews. 2,100, no. I think it's still low. I think they still lost a lot of reviews. Uh, but they're back to being the best seller, at least. Um, yeah. 
you know, this really, uh, yeah, I think it's great for Bloom. And I, to be honest, I, I bet Bloom makes an energy drink at this point because like Nutribolt just seems like the perfect person to make an energy drink with, especially like a greens energy drink. I don't know how that works or tastes, but it sounds like something that could be a big deal. It really makes me realize how big an opportunity that athletic, like I don't understand what Athletic Greens is doing. Athletic Greens has seeded the market when it comes to Amazon, when it comes to wholesale at Target, at you know at all these other places. So much so that Bloom Nutrition exists, and Bloom Nutrition is now large enough to or, or to get ninety million dollars of financing. I bet half that was at least secondary, but like now they've got the backing of a huge institution. That institution is going to put resources behind Bloom in a way yeah, they're not going to really lose that ninety Athletic million. Greens. Yeah, exactly. They're not going to be like, great, now uh, Athletic Greens on uh, um, on Amazon. I guess we're going to have a tough time competing. They're going to be like, fuck it. We've got a ton of money. Let's compete as well. We're going to create new products. We've got formulators. We know how to do this. We've got distribution. You, Let's say Athletic Greens wants to get into Target. Can they? I'm not sure anymore. Target may have been like, look, we built Blooms. It's got an end cap at our stores. It's huge. It's the price point we want. We've got a close partnership with them. They're our guy. We've already backed the horse. So I'm not sure what AG1 is thinking when they're like not taking it. Like, I understand what they were doing for a long time. We want to be singularly minded. We want to have a ton of scale and we want to leave a lot of meat on the bone if we want to get acquired or raise money. We can go into stores. We haven't launched on Amazon. We can launch new SKUs. But the longer and longer they wait, the more like this is a zero sum game in some ways. When you give up sales at Target and on Amazon, you know, you don't get those sales back once you launch there. Somebody might be like, I have a Bloom subscription. I like the Athletic Greens. I found Bloom. I have a subscription on Amazon. I go to Target to buy it. That's where I go to buy it. Why are they doing this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Athletic Greens is also only, it's a single SKU brand. I feel like at one point when they hired Cat Cole, they did a huge marketing campaign and push where they sort of changed their name from Athletic Greens to, to want to be called AG1 which gave me the thought that there's going to be an AG2, an AG3, and so forth. But there hasn't been anything launched. And I think Bloom, you know, Bloom did kind of what like all these mattress companies did. Uh, I remember the Casper founder was telling me, you know, they were like, we came in, we built this incredible supply chain. We figured out exactly how to ship mattresses. We set up a factory. We had a great relationship. We set up a 3PL. We got everything going. And then these guys come along, you know, I won't name who, but, you know, basically the next wave of brands come along and they figured out, oh, wait a second, we can just find a factory that's making our stuff, you know, tell them we're going to order it on demand and then drop ship it to the customer. And they kept, you know, 60% of the margin that we didn't keep. And I think Bloom's doing the same thing, which is take advantage of a market leader who's educating the market. Uh, Grunz is another example. Grunz is like greens gummies. Think like athletic greens, but gummies. And they're doing the same thing. It's like there's companies that are pushing hard in the gummy space and in the green space. Let's just go in and let's just take market share of people who are already educated and already interested and understand the benefits. I think it was really smart of Bloom because they're also a fraction of the cost of AG1. They have virtually the same benefits. They did a really good job building the brand. I think a lot of these second secondary players do a poor job building brand. They did a phenomenal job building brand and and adding that story with the founder. I think it's something that's like going to keep happening, but it's crazy that that no one else in this space got as uh, brandable as Bloom did following Athletic Greens. I can't believe it either. I think that like, uh, you know, the way I think about it is like, you know, when the United States was created it was only sort of these 13 colonies. And then we bought like Louisiana and conquered the rest of like the continent. 
you know, Athletic Greens is like, we founded these 13 colonies. They're great. We're just going to stay here. And meanwhile, a separate country that is Louisiana and the West Coast was like, fuck this manifest destiny. We're going to we're going to we're going to build our own country here. And it's going to be, you know, for a while, it's going to take a long, a lot more time to build it because you've got a head start. But our country, our land is far more vast than yours. Like I understand what Athletic Greens did, and I think that they're they are the market leader. The hard part is I don't Agreed. understand why the market leader isn't taking advantage of their position as the market leader. You know, seven or eight years ago, it might have been unclear what you should do. Should you remain direct to consumer only? Like Dollar Shave Club, even post acquisition by Unilever, was direct to consumer only for ten years. When we were talking to Unilever about selling native, they were also going to buy our competitor. They're like, your competitor is going to be in brick and mortar stores. You guys are going to remain direct to consumer only. I was like, are you guys crazy? Like the world is everywhere. Like, you know, we can't go, would not be everywhere. And it blows my mind that AG1 is still not everywhere. Okay, somebody is reselling AG1 on Amazon and they're selling over a thousand units a month of two different SKUs. It's crazy that that Athletic Greens isn't on Amazon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Two other things that I want to talk about, about fundraising, actually maybe three. One is Sanzo raised $5 million. I thought that was Let's really go. interesting or I read that. Um, the other was at Nut Pods. Uh, are you familiar with Nut Pods? No. They were uh, raised $33 million from VMG a really long oh, time ago. Oh, I remember this brand, um, yeah. And they uh, had $19 million in sales in 2019. Those were the only numbers that I could uh, get. Um, they were acquired by a company called M Perk Rock, which I've never heard of that company. They do, Anyway, Nut Pods does like plant-based creamers that stay re- refrigerated, so it's not like dairy creamers. You know, think cashew milk or almond milk or all that kind of stuff. I don't know. They've done a really good job with branding. Like, you know, it's hard to think like, okay, Khalifa Farms is the almond milk that I should add into my coffee. Like, uh, but Nut Pods is like, we're like, look, they're like, this is the almond milk to add into your coffee. I don't know what their revenue is, but I always really admire that brand. Anyway, they got acquired and I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, There's one final thing uh, that I want to chat about in terms of fundraising. And that is this information from Carta that I got. You know what Carta is? Yeah, it's basically... The paperwork side of managing equity and shares of investors or advisors who come into your company is insanely complicated. And Carta basically does that similar to how AngelList made it easy to manage SPVs, investments, and funds. Yes, that's exactly right. And so Carta uh, released this report and was sort of like, look, if you're raising money, what is your what is the average check size that people invest? And I think that's always been really uh, that's really been valuable information because people are always, you know, people in our shoes are like, how much, is, like, you know, people are always like, how much do you invest? People will come to me and be like, I'm raising $10 million in ways. Can you invest $10 million? And I'm like, how well, like, are you insane? Like, of course I can't invest $10 million. I'm not Jeff Bezos here. And so they were like, look, what is the average check size depending on the amount raised? So I'm going to give you a bunch of different oh, ranges nice. of like how much a business raised. And you tell me what you think the average check size is. Okay. And we'll start with 2.5 million to 4.9 million. What do you think the average check size is for a brand? So, and like Carta knows this information because they're like, okay, this business raised $5 million. Uh, here are all the investors and how much they put in. What is the average check size of somebody who raised 2.5 to $5 million? I'd say 25K. Okay. It's actually more than that. I'm surprised that you thought it was so low. It's 50K. Okay. Uh, okay, average check size of people who raised one to two point four million dollars. So let's let's say you just raised a million dollars or two and a half million dollars. You got several investors. You know, look at this. Like the two point five to five million dollars. Usually at that point you have like some institutional money. Yeah. Like some institution is going to come in and put in at least a million dollars. Most angels aren't writing million dollar checks. 
or maybe yeah. they are if like they're certainly rich enough. But like you know, one million to two point four. Maybe you have uh, an institution there, like a small seed stage investor. Um, but what do you think the average check size is there? Yeah, for that, I would say twenty five k for this one. It's forty k for that one. Am okay. Two more that I've got for you. Okay. One is a two hundred fifty thousand dollars. They raised two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I think it was two to a million, two hundred fifty thousand to a million. So here, it's very likely that it's just it could just be angel investors. You know, there yeah. may again there may be some like wealthy, uh, like you know, some guy who's uh, had an exit and raised money could also just be friends and family. What do you think the average check size is if you did two hundred fifty k to one million? I'm gonna go for twenty five k. Okay, it's twelve thousand five hundred here. Wow. Oh wow. Pretty so low. Like yeah, that's way lower. I mean. Yeah, that means people are writing like, you know, a couple thousand dollar checks. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're doing friends and family, you might be getting a couple thousand dollar checks for sure. Because yeah. like, you know, it's it's hard to be like, you know, imagine if you just graduated undergrad or, you know, or even uh, like, you know, you're 27 years old, your friends now work at, you know, uh, they're consultants or lawyers or bankers or something, and you go to them to hit up money. Like, you know, they're not going to be like, well, let me give you a $50,000 check. Like, yeah. that's going to be a lot of their net worth at that, po- at that point. Right. It's 12500 Okay, the last one I'm going to ask about, and then I think we got to uh, go at some point, is uh, $5 million or more. So this is hard because this could also mean like, you know, $9 million. Yeah. What do you think the average check size is at $5 million raised? Uh, 150K? 95K. Really close. That's a, hard, that's a really tough one to get. So yeah, that is really close. But about 95K, virtually $100,000 if you've raised $5 million. Do you remember what the last check you wrote was? Or not company, but just the amount? And valuation, or good question. Money raised. Uh, look, if I if I'm investing in a fund, you know, I'll yeah, probably like different. you know, uh, I'm yeah, exactly. I'm ready to write two hundred fifty to two million dollar checks. I think the last company that I invested in was probably fifty k check. At yeah. um, shoot, I want to say it was a twelve million dollar valuation, but I'm not positive anymore. It's been yeah. a while since I invested in a brand. Although I did drive, uh, you know, a, um, my friend Ramon was just on Shark Tank on Friday, so we went down to have a party. It is uh, in Austin. You know, on that drive down, I had three phone calls where I'm like, I might invest in this brand, and that was pretty awesome to see. Like, I, I haven't awesome. invested in a brand in a long time, and now I'm finally starting to see brands that I'm excited about again. So yeah, I, I'm starting to get excited about writing those checks again. That's awesome. Okay, I know there. I know we want to do uh, an audit of a website, and I'm still not going to tell you its name. This is the second time I've messed this up and forgotten to add this to the agenda at the very beginning. So next episode, I, I'm going to we'll apologize to these guys on Twitter. Yeah, let's start with the audit of this website. I'm really excited to do it. These guys volunteered their website, gave me a little bit of information about themselves. I'm sure they're they're excited to do it, but I'm going to send them an apology on Twitter. I don't want to talk about it just yet because I don't want people to go to the website. We're going to do Perfect. it together on the next episode. Amazing. Thanks for listening to this episode and we'll see you next week. Thanks guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one. 